the chief priests and the scribes with the elders came up and said to him, Tell us, by what authority you do these things, or who it is that gave you this authority? He answered them, I also will ask you a question. Now tell me, was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? And they discussed it with one another, saying, If we say from heaven, he will say, Why did you not believe him? But if we say from man, all the people will stone us to death, for they are convinced that John was a prophet. So they answered that they did not know where it came from. And Jesus said to them, Neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, as we now have heard your word from Luke 19 and 20, we confess our need for your help, that your spirit would come, that your spirit would do the needed work in our hearts and our minds, opening our eyes to see the wonders of the gospel, the good news in these verses, that we would see the authority of Jesus, our King, revealed here, and that it would not drive us away from him, but rather that it would draw us near him in submission, joyful submission. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Well, there are certain times in life when you just can't have it both ways. Life is uh, made up of decisions that we each must make. A dad must choose if he should work overtime or go to his daughter's concert. A high school senior must decide if he will enter the university or the trade school in the fall. A U.S. senator must decide if he should go along with his political party and support the new legislation or follow his conscience and what he knows is best for his constituents in his home state and vote against it. In each of these examples, a final decision must be made and you can't have it both ways. But we are a people who like to have it both ways. In our passage this morning, we see the top people, the elite, the people who are considered to be the important ones, wanting to have it both ways. They, they, they want to make Jesus look like a fool, while at the same time, looking good and righteous before the crowds themselves. They want to keep the respect of the people, at the same time, call the people's devotion to Jesus into question. They also want to be honored by God and found righteous in his sight, while at the same time, rejecting and destroying the influence of the Savior King that God has sent to them. They can't have it both ways. They must make a decision regarding what they're going to do 
about Jesus. And of course, we are each faced with a similar decision. How will we respond to the Lord Jesus? Now, many of you may be thinking, Pastor, I made that decision long ago. I mean, that, that, that's been settled already. But I want to give you a heads up. By the end of this message, you will see that it is a choice that must be made every day, if not several times a day. Will we decide for him, knowing that we may suffer for it, or will we seek to have it both ways? Our main theme here from this section of, uh, chap- of chapter 19 and into the first section of chapter 20, that we must all personally respond to the authority of Jesus. We must all personally respond to the authority of Jesus. Now, in, in the previous verses that we looked at last time, verses 28 through 44 of Luke 19, we saw Jesus riding the colt of the donkey down the Mount of Olives, approaching Jerusalem exactly as it had been foretold many generations prior. This was the promised Messiah coming into Jerusalem. And now Luke reports his initial coming into the temple and what he did within the temple the whole week prior to the crucifixion and finally the first confrontation that he has with the religious leadership in Jerusalem here in chapter 20. So in all three scenes here, Luke is showing us the authority of Jesus. That's the theme, that the authority of Jesus. His authority was first displayed in the temple, then it was despised, and finally it was questioned. And each of the characters in these scenes, as well as each of us, we will all have to personally respond to the kingly authority of Jesus. So first, let's look at the first two verses, first section, 45 and 46 of chapter 19, the authority of the king displayed. And he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold, saying to them, it is written, my house shall be a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers. Last time that we saw Jesus in the temple, in the Gospel of Luke, was back at the end of chapter 2 in Luke when, when, when Jesus was just 12 years old. I'm sure you remember that story, you know, really the only one that we have of Jesus' childhood. Uh, Jesus had, had come with his family to Jerusalem for the Passover uh, feast back then, and they ended up traveling home without him. And what's actually uh, something that can happen uh, pretty easily to larger families, you know, when they go to church, or even even smaller ones who have to, you know, draw uh, or, or drive two different vehicles uh, to church happens a lot. Uh, Mary and Joseph realize here that they don't have Jesus with them while they're still on the journey back to Nazareth, and uh, so they return to Jerusalem under great distress to look for him, and they find him in the temple sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. And Luke tells us, all who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his answers. Here's a 12-year-old boy wanting to listen to the teachers in the temple and inquiring of them, talking about the Word of God. But his parents 
they had a different response. They were a bit put off that Jesus seemed to have no concern for them, you know, leaving while he remained all alone in Jerusalem. But do you remember what Jesus said to them? He said, did you not know that I must be in my father's house? So the last time that Luke had Jesus in the temple, back when he was 12, Luke records him as calling the temple my father's house. That's quite a claim for a 12-year-old boy. That the temple, which was known to all the people as the dwelling place of God, in the midst of his people, that that is my father's house. Jesus is saying there, the Lord, the God of heaven and earth, Yahweh, the one who delivered Israel out of Egypt, the one who fed and cared for Israel in the wilderness, the God who gave you the promised land, the one who dwells within the holy of holies between the cherubim, that is my Father. This is his house. So when Jesus makes the claim that the temple is his Father's house, he's also, in effect, making the claim to ownership of the house for himself. And now in Luke 19, Jesus comes back to his father's house. He comes back to his house. And the last thing, uh, the, the first thing he does here is he exerts his authority over the place. It says he began to drive out, that is drive out of his father's house those who sold. Uh, we learn from the other Gospels that within the temple courts, there was a market where Jewish travelers uh, could purchase their animals that they would need for offering sacrifices for, for Passover or for the other uh, religious festivals that, were, that they would be attending. Uh, there were sheep, goats, pigeons, and turtle doves all being sold there uh, in the temple. Plus, there would have been you know, money changers uh, exchanging uh, you know, different currencies going on uh, within those temple courts, of course, with the different currencies being brought in from all different uh, areas and, uh, and cities outside of Jerusalem. It was, it was far more convenient for worshipers to purchase their animals in Jerusalem and then have to bring them all the way from their homes, um, you know, many of them many, many miles away. However, historians have reported for us that there were other markets available in and around Jerusalem, outside of the temple, for the people to get their sacrificial animals. And the chief priests and the scribes and the principal men of the temple had opened it up for these sellers to set up shop at, of course, would have been the most convenient place, right there within the temple courts themselves, and had, in effect, they had rented out the space and were making a profit off of the business going on within the temple. And Jesus walks in and puts a stop to it. Now this would not have been a comfortable scene. I mean, think about it. This, this would have been pretty disturbing if you were there. Have you ever been in a, in a public place where one person takes exception to something going on and begins to, to raise a ruckus about it? 
raising his voice, getting the attention of everyone he can, sharing his displeasure? I mean, have you ever been in a situation like that? How did it make you feel to, to be there, to, to witness it? What about if the person was with you and doing this? I mean, come on, that is uncomfortable. That is very tense. This wasn't normal. This had to have been a little wild, and this, of course, was Jesus doing this. Jesus turning over tables. Jesus chasing out the animals with a whip. Not some you know, mentally unstable guy who had forgotten to take his meds. This is Jesus doing this. And for an explanation for why Jesus responded in this way, Luke has Jesus quoting from the scriptures, from the prophet Isaiah, uh, chapter 56 of Isaiah, where, where God says there that foreigners and those who are considered unclean will, will, will come into his house and bring their sacrifices and their burnt offerings. For, God says in, in uh, Isaiah 56, 7, for my house shall be called a house of prayer for all peoples. The word peoples there in uh, Isaiah 56, 7 could also be translated as nations. That points to the very court where all this ruckus was likely going on in the temple, the temple court of the Gentiles, the court of the nations. This was an area reserved for Gentile worshipers of God to gather for prayer and worship. They could not come into the temple any, any closer to the Holy of Holies. This was the furthest they could go the closest to the presence of God that they were allowed to get. It was an area reserved for them. But rather than it being a place where those from other nations could gather and pray and worship, it had become, as Jesus called it, a den of thieves. Which was a direct quote from from Jeremiah 7, verse 11, where God was proclaiming judgment upon Israel there in that chapter. Judgment that he was about to send upon the people uh, using the Chaldeans, the, the Babylonians, to come and overthrow the city and destroy the temple. The temple for the people had become this place where they believed they could take refuge as long as they had the temple. They thought God was sure to protect them and bless them no matter how wicked or idolatrous they had become. But God said to them, the temple is going to offer you no protection." Just like a bunch of wicked thieves you know, believe that their den or their hideout will protect them from the authorities, in the end, they will be called to account. They will face judgment. And Jesus, the, the Son of God, had come to his house. And he had cleaned house a bit so that the nations could come and pray and worship. And as we'll see next, so that he could have a place to teach where the gospel would be heard without the bleeding of sheep drowning out his words so that all could hear and believe and be saved. Secondly, we see in verses 47 and 48, the authority of the king despised. The authority of the king despised. And he was teaching daily in the temple. The chief priests and the scribes and the principal men of the people were seeking to destroy him But they did not find anything they could do, for all the people were hanging on his words. Luke reveals here a division among the people in Jerusalem. He reports that as Jesus was teaching 
in his father's house day by day during the week of the Passover that all the people were hanging on his words. This is Luke's way of saying uh, what the other gospel writers described as Jesus teaching with great authority. In Mark chapter 1, verse 22, he reports that the people were astonished at his teaching, for he taught them as one who had authority and not as the scribes. That is, Jesus knew what he was talking about. He spoke about God's word as if it was his word. And he described the kingdom of God as if he were the king. And in John 7, the chief priests had sent some officers to arrest Jesus while he was teaching. And they returned back without him. And when they were challenged for why they didn't fulfill their mission, they had this to say about Jesus' teaching in John 7, 46. They said, no one ever spoke like this man. We've never heard anyone Speak like this man. So here Jesus, or here Luke describes Jesus teaching like someone who is able to keep the attention of every single person in the room. I mean, imagine a, a high school gymnasium completely full of people in the stands and cheerleaders for, for both teams on each side of the court and there's one second remaining on the clock at the end of the basketball game. And the home team is down by a point. And the teams are lined up for a free throw with the home team at the line with a chance to win the game. And the gym is completely quiet. All you can hear are the bounces of the ball off the floor echoing off the walls. Everyone's attention is transfixed on that shooter, waiting to see what will happen with his shot. Everyone on the home side of the gym anticipating erupting in shouts and cheers of exultation if the shot drops, and the opposing side ready to breathe a great collective sigh of relief if it doesn't. That's what it must have been like in the temple, listening to Jesus teach with everyone being as quiet as they possibly could be in order to hear each and every word that came from his mouth. The people were hanging on his words. But not everyone was excited to hear what Jesus had to say. The elites of the people hated what he was saying. That's what Luke describes them as being here in verse 47. He was teaching daily in the temple. The chief priests and the scribes and the principal men of the people were seeking to destroy him. In these two verses, Luke is describing for us the division here that was taking place amongst the people's responses to Jesus. The crowds loved him. The elites hated him. The crowds had never heard such teaching. They were thrilled to hear it. Now, Luke doesn't say that they believed him, that their hearts were being transformed by the teaching, just that they hung on his words, while the elites just wanted to silence him. They were seeking to destroy him. 
And this is revealing something to us about, about this world that we ought to take notice of, brothers and sisters. It is that those who are in power in this sinful world, those who are the elites, the principal men who hold influence and sway over this fallen world will almost always oppose Christ, the true king, the sovereign Lord. The elites will always make it difficult for those under them to follow Jesus. They can't stand to see any of their power and influence slip away to any rival, even the one from heaven. They will put pressure on those uh, that they see are more devoted to Christ than they are to them. They will not tolerate divided loyalties. They will force those under them to choose who they will follow, will, who they will serve. They like to claim that, that they are supportive of the personal, private faith and religion of people under them just as long as they keep their faith personal and private. It is when faith commitments become public that they start talking about restricting such extreme views. These elites here in Jerusalem, they meant business. Jesus was going way too public with his teaching and his ministry here, and so they opposed him and found a way to silence him by way of a conspiracy that had him betrayed into their hands and crucified by the Roman Empire. And we ought to pay attention to that and realize that those who are in power in our nation, they are not our allies. They are not our allies. They may be tolerating the faithful church presently, but we have seen how quickly things can change. So where will we stand? How will we respond? Whose authority will we submit to? To the authoritative teaching of, of the king or to the principal men and women who want to silence him, to destroy him? And lastly, in the first eight verses here of chapter 20, we see the authority of the king questioned. One day as Jesus was teaching the people in the temple and preaching the gospel, the chief priests and the scribes with the elders came up and said to him, tell us, by what authority you do these things or who it is that gave you this authority? He answered them, I also will ask you a question. Now tell me, was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? And they discussed it with one another, saying, if we say from heaven, he will say, why did you not believe him? But if we say from man, all the people will stone us to death for they are convinced that John was a prophet. So they answered that, they did not know where it came from. And Jesus said to them, Neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. So Luke reminds us once again of Jesus' primary activity during the week of Passover. In the days leading up to his crucifixion, he was teaching in the temple. He was preaching the gospel in the temple. And this group of elites come up and decide to question him. They question him, by saying, tell us by what authority you do these things, or who is it that gave you this authority? They were mainly concerned with authority here. And we remember what Jesus did when he first entered the temple back in verse 45. He cleared that out 
uh, cleared out those who were buying and selling there. And, and that is what they were referring to mainly in verse 2. Who did Jesus think he was walking in and doing that in the temple? Who gave him to do the authority to do such a thing as that? I mean, they don't believe he had any authority in himself to do that. This, this shows they did not believe he was the Messiah. They, they, they didn't believe he was the Son of God. They didn't even believe he was a prophet who spoke for God. In their eyes, Jesus was nothing. He was nothing. Just some, some teacher from some podunk village that nobody's ever even heard of. They believed he was a nobody, so if, any, if he had any authority, well then someone who actually is in power had to grant that authority to him, had to give him that authority. Jesus responds to, to their questioning his authority by asking them a question. It's also a question regarding authority. That of the authority of John the Baptist. John wants to know what they believe regarding John's ministry. And he only gives them two choices. And they can't have it both ways. Did John receive his, his authority for his ministry from heaven or or from man, that is, just from himself. Was he sent, or did he just go off on his own, do his own thing? And rather than, Je than giving Jesus a direct answer, like all politicians, they huddle up, and they discuss how they should best answer this question. And we can see here how they discuss how to answer the question that they had no personal conviction whatsoever to the truth. That was not their concern. They didn't care about the truth at all. What they were most concerned about here was how they would be perceived by others. And they're also very worried about their own skin. For even though they, they aren't convinced about much regarding John, the people most certainly were. The people were convinced he was a prophet that he spoke God's words, and therefore his ministry was from heaven. So if they would come out against John, they would then have to deal with the crowd's anger against them, which they were greatly afraid of. Now, of course, what Jesus does here is brilliant, for in his question, uh, Jesus also answers their question of him. They've asked for Jesus to present the foundation for his authority. And Jesus asked them what they believe about John's ministry. Was it from heaven or from man? And Luke spent some time at the beginning of his book to inform us about John's origins and, and what his ministry was focused on. And if you remember that back in uh, the first three chapters of Luke, uh, you'll remember the book of Luke begins with John's father, Zechariah, meeting up with the angel Gabriel in the temple, telling him that he and his wife who had not been able to have children, and now they're old, they're going to now have a son. And they're to name this son John. And once John was born, then his father declared this about him. He said, and you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways. And then in John's gospel, we see John the Baptist declaring that Jesus was the Messiah. John the Baptist says in Luke, or I'm sorry, in John 129, he is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. 
So John the Baptist declared that Jesus had the authority to do what he did in the temple because he was the Lord God who had come to save his people. His authority was from heaven, not from man. Therefore, if these elites would have answered Jesus' question that John's ministry was from heaven, which of course it was, then they would also have to affirm what John affirmed, that Jesus was the Messiah, that he was Lord. And they were unwilling to make such a declaration. But they were also unwilling to outright say that Jesus did not have the authority to cleanse the temple and teach daily in it, for they feared the people's response to them if they would have said that John's ministry was from man. So they were duplicitous. They were unwilling to give an answer. They wanted it both ways. Uh, which, which led, of course, to Jesus making an example of them by saying, well, neither will I give you an answer by telling you what authority, by what authority I do these things. Jesus was saying, I, I don't speak to duplicitous people. I'm not going to waste my time with double-minded people, those who are unwilling to give an honest answer based on their convictions of what they believe is true. I won't waste my time with such people. They don't deserve a response from me. And friends, our society is filled, filled with duplicitous people, those who want things both ways, those who want to be thought of as people with strong convictions, but who hope they will never have to actually be required to give an answer for those convictions. Or people in our society love to spew forth their convictions online in the privacy of their own homes, on their social media accounts, but when they have to come face-to-face -face with someone else who disagrees with them, who challenges their convictions, they tend to, to not be so bold. So friends, what we are seeing here in this passage this morning is that we will each have to take a stand on what we believe regarding the authority of Jesus. If we claim to be Christians, if we claim that Jesus really is the Son of God, the Lord of heaven and earth, the King, well then we will confess that he has all authority that his word is true, it is right, it is good, and that everyone will be judged according to how they have responded to what he has said. Whether or not they have obeyed or, or disobeyed, whether or not they have submitted to his word or rejected it, that's how they'll be judged. And as we can see what is coming on the horizon, and is actually already here for many believers in our country, is where we stand on what the Lord has said in particular about sex and gender. Every Christian, every church, every Christian organization in our society will one day be forced to confess what they believe about homosexual practice, whether it's sinful and condemned by God or not, whether there are, are two sexes, male and female, or if they would allow for multiple categories of sex and gender. Whether or not the Bible's sexual ethic is right and good, or is it something that can be safely ignored and just set aside or adjusted 
to fit our more progressive and welcoming times? Friends, it all comes down to whether or not we believe Jesus is Lord. Whether or not we believe he is the one who has the authority, not us. We will have to give an answer. We cannot expect to please our secular neighbors and classmates and be accepted by them while at the same time remaining faithful to Jesus. We just can't have it both ways. That's why I mentioned earlier that's not just a matter of making a commitment one time in your life when you're young that you'll believe and trust in Jesus. It is a commitment that you will need to make every single day. When you find yourself in a discussion with a friend or a family member, close family member even, whose views on these things have been shaped by the powerful media in our culture, how will you respond to that? Will you just go along with it to keep the peace? Or will you speak the truth in love to them? Will you make it clear that you believe what Jesus says is right? That he is the sovereign authority that we will ultimately all have to answer to. We we won't be given a pass on this one. We all must personally respond to the authority of the king, of King Jesus. But the encouraging promise is, friends, that if you stand with him, then you will find that he is with you. That he is with you. And that he has prepared a table for you in the presence of your enemies. And that your cup will overflow with blessings and mercy and grace to help you to persevere. And you will find that his mercy and grace will follow you all the days of your life. And in the end, you'll be welcomed into his house forever. Let's pray. Our Father, now as we come to you and just acknowledge our need for you, our need for help, Lord, these are, these are difficult times to confess the authority of Jesus Christ over all things. Lord, I pray you would help each one of us to love you far more than we love ourselves, than we love our our desire to, to be liked and honored in this culture. And Lord, help us to have hearts of kindness and grace towards those who are outside of the faith, to know that uh, they are just like us, sinners in need of your grace and mercy to save them. Lord, help us to pray for that and to hold out the truth in love to them. Give us strength, we pray, in the name of Jesus. Amen.